0: Four, we're going to deal with explanation and evidence. Basically, it will focus on how anthropologists do the research in terms of the sorts of questions they pursue and the kinds of evidence they present. So we'll look at explanations, why theories cannot be proved, in fact they can only be falsified in a technical sense, how theories are generated, how evidence is collected to test explanations and the types of research in cultural anthropology. Okay, we'll begin with explanations. An explanation is simply an answer to a why question. For example, in the online reading, why is there variation in the use of spices in meat dishes? We'll use this example a little bit later. What anthropologists attempt to do, or any scientist actually, is to look for associations or relationships that is how certain kinds of variables seem to hang together to be consistently uh, present uh, in a variety of different cases. And it's important to understand that uh, when we talk about explanations, we're talking about hypotheses that are deduced from some kind of theory. And this is a very important point. It may come as a surprise to many of you that theories cannot be proved. Theories can never be proved with absolute certainty because we are unable to test them under all situations uh, that are possible uh, to test the theory. So what we do is employ the method of falsification, which shows that a theory seems to be wrong, is the main way in which that theories are judged. That is, if we fail to falsify a theory, or actually a hypothesis drawn from theory, then we can be confident that the theory or the hypothesis is um, reasonable and probably correct. According to the authors in their section under generating theories, there are two methods that have helped anthropologists produce explanations of cultural phenomena. We have the single case analysis. For example, we might see a pattern in our field data that shows that polygyny, or a man being able to marry more than one woman at a time, and status are connected. Therefore we might look through our data and see how many men are polygynous and have high status versus how many men are monogamous and have moderate or low status. This would be a kind of single case analysis. On the other hand, we might want to find out if this relationship holds cross-culturally. And I'd like to point out again that your authors, Carol Ember and Mel Ember, are really leaders in the field of comparative analysis. And so we might gather together a random sample of, let's say, 50 societies and look to see if indeed in all these societies there's a relationship between polygyny and status. And if we can't find that relationship, then we've perhaps falsified uh, the theory and uh, we have to go elsewhere to figure out what polygyny is associated with. And so this is the value of comparative study. We can move from a single case, what we've observed in the field, in our own research, to see how well that idea plays out across the globe through some kind of comparative study. When we try to test a hypothesis, uh, we need evidence. And one of the first things we have to do is to operationalize the variables. For example, we're talking about uh, the relationship between status and polygyny. Now, the variable status is what we call an independent variable or a factor that we think determines a dependent variable that we call uh, polygyny. And so how do we kind of operationalize uh, our variables? Well, for status, it could be a bit complex. That is, we would perhaps do a survey and ask people in a particular community to rank order everyone in terms of their high status to low status position. Uh, or we might think that perhaps um, certain offices held by individuals are indicative of high status and so we get a sense of how to kind of measure what we mean by high status and this is called operationalization the way to operationalize uh, polygyny is fairly straightforward does a man have more than one wife at the same time very kind of simple sort of thing that we can observe we also when we do our research you want to generate a sample and that sample needs to be random if we're going to do any kind of statistical test on it. Um, that's an absolute requirement. And sampling and random sampling ensures that our collection of individuals that we include in the study are not somehow biased unconsciously, uh, that uh, you know perhaps would um, allow our ideas to be more easily proved. Uh, we want to make sure that um, there's no bias in the sampling. Here's an example presented in table 4.1 of a kind of cross-cultural research that looked at the relationship between the availability of protein and the duration of the postpartum sex taboo. The availability of protein has to do with the availability largely of meat resources in the diet and this can be accomplished by doing Uh, dietary surveys um, in societies and um, making measures of uh, high protein availability to low protein availability fairly straightforward and so is the duration of what is known as the postpartum sex taboo well what is a postpartum sex taboo Uh, in many societies um, couples married couples are not permitted to have such a relationship so long as the child they've produced is con- continuously nursing. Uh, the taboo ends typically after the child ceases nursing. Uh, it can range from a very short period of time to a couple weeks to so up to a year to uh, more than a year. And so with this idea that there's a relationship between availability of protein in the diet and the duration of the postpartum sex taboo, um, John Whiting looked at the relationship and he had measures of uh, protein avail- availability, high, medium, and low, and then also measures of short and long postpartum sex taboos. And as you can see where um, protein availability is high, uh, there tends to be a short uh, postpartum sex taboo. And then if you look uh, at the intersection between low protein availability and uh, long postpartum sex taboo, uh, that's higher than if you look up the column uh, where societies have high or medium um, Durations of, uh, or excuse me, uh, intakes of protein. And so we see a kind of pattern. The pattern is not strong, but it's consistent and statistically um, significant. And so this is a way we can begin to try and understand an interesting phenomenon the duration of a postpartum sex taboo, and why in some societies it is very short, and in why in some societies it is relatively long now clearly this doesn't really uh, kind of unpack some of the details that is why should this relationship uh, exist the idea here is that uh, high quality protein in the diet uh, is a kind of a measure of the ability of a mother to undergo short-term periods of nursing Uh, which then allows her to wean her child, uh, making sure that uh, her milk is replaced with high-quality protein. And so we have this kind of short postpartum sex taboo. In evidence uh, testing explanations, we again look at operationalization. And uh, what it says here, in order to ensure research is done accurately, a researcher typically provides an operational definition of each concept or variable. Operational definitions are really important because it provides clarity in terms of what is really meant by something, as we mentioned before, uh, having high status. And also, it's really critical because if someone wants to test another researcher's ideas, he needs or she needs to know exactly how the variable uh, was measured. So operationalization is really critical and because it essentially deals with how the variable or the set of variables will be measured. We're going to look now at the types of research in cultural anthropology. Beginning with ethnography, ethnography tends to be descriptive. Uh, when people do ethnographic research, they're not necessarily trying to test ideas scientifically, but rather just to describe what goes on in a particular culture in terms of what are the patterns of, of marriage, uh, how the status system works, how they adapt to the environment, etc., etc. But uh, we also might want to move to within cultural comparisons. And again, Uh, the example of polygyny and status will give you an idea of how this works. For example, we know that there's some variation in marriage patterns. Some men have uh, one wife, or they have no wives, and some men have several wives. And so, if we want to try and discover within that particular culture what seems to be associated with polygyny, and here we mentioned before it was high status, uh, we could do an analysis Uh, within a particular culture. And then we can move to regional controlled um, comparisons, uh, where we might want to look at, for example, uh, the relationship between having uh, herding as a major part of your economy, where you have um, animals that you have to graze, and the relationship between a pattern of descent, such as patrilineality. And so we might restrict our analysis to uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, as an example, and look at maybe 30 or 40 different societies in that particular region. And indeed, research has indicated uh, that there is a strong relationship between patrilineal descent and having herd animals. The agricultural peoples in Sub-Saharan Africa tend to be matrilineal or bilateral and their social organization. You'll learn more about that later. Uh, But almost all of the herding people are patrilineal. And then we can move to uh, what we call cross-cultural research, uh, which um, was presented to you a little bit earlier uh, in Whiting's research on postpartum sex taboos and the availability of protein uh, in the diet. And then finally, we might want to look at um, how a particular society or a set of societies have changed through time as certain factors become more important, other factors change, and we can do this temporarily or historically uh, through historical research. The other kinds of research across cultural Um, or regional control comparisons are typically what we call cross-sectional research because um, they occur at a particular moment in time and not through time. Again in your text it looks at ethnography uh, and um, After doing a a spate of field work, typically lasting more than than a year, an anthropologist may prepare an ethnography or a description and perhaps some analysis of a single society. So that's what an ethnography is all about. And most anthropologists engage in ethnographic kinds of research. Uh, It's also important to do research uh, ethically. Uh, For example, before we can do any kind of research we have to present our methods to what is known as the IRB or the Institutional Review Board which is for the protection of human subjects and we have to convince uh, the IRB that we have safeguards in place uh, to protect our research, our our subjects, in our research. And also the American Anthropological Association, or the AAA, has its own code of ethics. And the preeminent one is to essentially, in your research, do not harm the people that you are uh, studying. Again, the types of research in cultural anthropology we can look at within cultural comparisons is testing a theory within one society, comparing individuals, families, households, communities, or districts, for example. And again, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, looking at the relationship between status and polygyny would be a kind of within culture comparison. Another type of research in cultural anthropology is a regional control comparison. Uh, and an ethnographic comparison between societies in the same or similar region. And uh, the example I gave you before was herding and patrilineal descent in sub-Saharan Africa. And what we found out, um, or what researchers have found out, is that there is a powerful association between patrilineal descent and dependence on herd animals, largely cattle, uh, but sometimes. Um, camels and and horses in Sub-Saharan Africa. And again, to uh, reiterate on cross-cultural research, uh, these are worldwide comparisons between societies having and those lacking a particular characteristic. This method is beneficial in that the conclusions drawn probably are applicable to most societies. And indeed, cross-cultural comparisons Uh, both in anthropology and in psychology and sociology are kind of a gold standard. Uh, If our ideas are true within a particular society, we find them true in a uh, controlled uh, regional comparison, then if we can successfully test them uh, cross-culturally through a worldwide sample, then we have a great deal of confidence in uh, our theory. Lastly, we have historical research, sometimes called ethnohistory. It consists of studies based on descriptive materials about a single society at more than one point in time. But actually, you can do this kind of research over several societies at more than one point in time. Uh, for example, you might want to study the impact of uh, contact in terms of trade and commercialization on the subsist systems of a particular group and you can look at what they uh, were like prior to the uh, impact of um, commercialization and then as commercialization gained steady hold you can look at the various sorts of changes until they're completely commercialized and so this is an example of historical research is done through time and so what happens is that certain variables, the impact of commercialization, as an example, begins to slowly increase and we make predictions about uh, the certain kinds of changes that should occur um, through time as commercialization becomes stronger and stronger.